From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 257 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie. Mary Jo, how are you today? I'm doing great. Hi, Michael. And I want to thank you for including me in this week's episode. I'm happy to be one of your uh, fill-in friends this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it I uh, as well. And uh, I think you're, you're the perfect person sort of to kick off our round of um, guest hosts, guest co-hosts until Craig returns. We're hoping sometime in the fall. Although Craig may be a guest host, you know, once oh, that would or be twice. Fine. You never know. So, and, and we are, we are back with a new episode. We ran the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, we pulled, um, you might remember the interview with Ben Harris, Mary Jo, that I did on the Disneyland show. I and remember that. Way back in 2015. So we, uh, it's funny because I didn't remember it. <laughs> I've, I've done <laughs> well, so many of these so shows. Well, they were always so interesting. So I yeah. always was, you know. With, with my my uh, hands on my chin, just listening to everything that that oh, was being said you. in those interviews, and I know that the and that the uh, shows were up a bit late. It's, as Craig posted at one point, we were having issues with the server. Craig told me this afternoon that that has been resolved. So hopefully, we are going to go back to being a Friday Saturday, you know, release schedule. So well, that's good keep, to hear. Keep our fingers crossed. Technology and I sometimes do not get along. Okay. <laughs> well, today we are continuing our series of Walt Disney's animated features. In the past, we've covered the Alice comedies, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, the Silly Symphonies, the careers of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, and the making of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. In episode 253 and 254, we explored the early development of Walt Disney's Pinocchio including several of the scenes and characters that were deleted and the process Walt and his team went through to develop the main characters. And in this installment, we are going to examine how some of the secondary characters were created. So Mary Jo, who do you think is the most frightening character in Pinocchio? Because we, we are taking a look at mostly villains in this episode. That's true. And, and I know there's a few villains and, um, and I, I was telling my family that I wanted to see Pinocchio before um, doing the show with you. And they said, let's all watch it together. So we, I, I just watched Pinocchio this past weekend and remembered what a lovely um, animated feature it is. But having said that, um, some people might pick Stromboli or say that Monstro is, is the obvious um, villain. Monster to me is he's a, a whale. He's an animal. For me, the one that freaked me out was the coachman. Mm-hmm. So 
people might not think about it, but he was so sinister when he was talking about um, that, that taking these vulnerable children, turning them into donkeys, sending them to the salt mines or the circus. And he had no compunction for any of them. And um, I, I totally got the yeesh factor when I was watching it, especially when he, uh, his face turned red and he had this demonic look. That one kind of made me, gave me like a little goosebumps on my arm. Shivered. So I was surprised to have that reaction. Mm-hmm. I what about you? you? <laughs> I agree with you that he is very sinister and we're, he is one of the characters we're going to talk about. Uh, for me, I think because of one scene, it's Stromboli. Mainly when, when they're in the cart and he's telling Pinocchio, who is trapped in the birdcage, what his fate will be when he's done with him. And then he has that axe and he throws it into a pile of par- of partially chopped up wooden marionettes. That was pretty horrible. And basically threatening to kill Pinocchio when he's when he doesn't need him anymore. And I, I just found that horrifying when I was a boy. So, and it still it still is pretty chilling in a Disney film. It re- it really is. We were we were kind of surprised. I think uh Disney um, in the earlier films, the the Disney Studio um, didn't—I don't want to say coddle, but didn't protect young children's feelings as much as as it's done today. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think we—I don't know. I I just think we were less. I don't even know what the word is. We we were. We, those kinds of things didn't have the impact on us. Or if they did, yeah, we had the nightmares and all of that. And then we just sort of got over it. <laughs> yeah. And now we tend to, I, in my opinion, we tend to sometimes overprotect children because that's a part of growing up. Being afraid safely is a part of our development. And, and that's one of many things I feel we are robbing children of that I think is going to have an impact on them when they're adults. I, a negative I think you impact. hit on a really good point. Um, because I mean, and I, I'm uh, guilty of it too. When my kids were younger, where you try to protect them from, from so much, but then if, if, in that safe environment, they can explore. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we're here to catch them um, when they face those issues. But if you protect them so much and shield them from anything that, that might scare them or bring alarm when they're faced with it at, at an older age, they don't have those coping skills that we exactly. developed when we were younger. That was exactly. a really good point, Michael. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's why I'm a great believer in free range children. Let them go out, play and explore like we did. And like my kids did in, and, and, and they were safe. And, you know, although I know I didn't know where Jerry was going all the time. And then, uh, and then, but neither did my parents about me. So, and, and then you, and then you, you make up games and, and rules and kids learn how to negotiate and learn how to troubleshoot. And yeah, maybe they get lost on one of their roamings around, but that's all part of development. Then they find their way back home. Yeah. They figure it out. So, and I think children are being robbed of a lot of that now. Yeah. When I see parents do that kind of stuff today, 
I, I just have to look at them and, and admire because the, I don't think that's the norm anymore. Mm-mm. No, it's not at all. But, you know, I want to start out talking about two of the more adorable secondary characters. And that, and one of them is my other favorite. Last, last time when John and I, we talked about who our favorite characters were, we both had the same favorite character, the blue fairy. So I don't do, oh, what's your favorite character in Pinocchio? Actually, my favorite character in Pinocchio is Figaro. Well, and that's my second favorite character, and that's who we're going to talk about first. So what do you like about Figaro? I love his antics. I love that I just want to cuddle him up, and I know he'd squirm out of my arms if if uh, I try to, but he's so dang cute, and the expressions that he has, and and um, they're kittenish, but yet... Um, he has so so much character mm-hmm. in him. I just I've always always been drawn to Figaro. Yeah, that's why I was so happy when they you know when they replaced Carnation um, Gardens with the, the Princess Fantasy Fair area, and they have Figaro up oh, yeah. there on the window. So I thought that was just a nice little touch. And he's sleeping, and then the little chirpy bird wakes him up. And he just sort of looks at him and then goes back to sleep again. Oh, he tries to swat him. He gets yeah. his little paw out and, <laughs> and swats him. Mm-hmm. So. Well, he's probably annoyed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Figaro the Kitten and Cleo the Goldfish are arguably the cutest characters in the film who play important roles. But they were not significant in, in Carlos Collati's story. In the book, Geppetto had a cat, but it was barely mentioned. In later drawings for the book in 1911, playful cats were inserted into scenes by the artist. So it was like, you know, when Pinocchio came to life, there was a cat looking at him. When when they meet meet up with Jiminy Cricket, there was a cat in the scene. There were all these cats in the books, in, in in the images for the book. In a 1937 stage version of the book, a cat was a major character who took an instant dislike to Pinocchio when he came to life. So early on, Walt and his team planned to give Geppetto an adult cat rather than the kitten we know now. Walt suggested the cat be, uh, quote, a screwball character, unquote, like the one in The Worm Turns, which is a recent Disney short cartoon with a comically sadistic cat. And Walt said, not the same personality, but just as extreme. In spring 1938, when Geppetto and Pinocchio were re- reworked, the cat became a playful kitten named Figaro. The studio had experience with cute kittens in their 1935 short, The Orphan Kittens, which was animated largely by Fred Moore. So Walt wanted to assign Moore to Figaro with the hopes he could capture the same cuteness. But this was, Pinocchio was the film in which the artists who would become known as Walt's nine old men were becoming dominant, and Figaro was handed off to Eric Larson. Larson had been part of the animal unit on Snow White and established himself as one of the studio's top artists when he supervised the unit of Figaro animators. In developing Figaro, Larson combined typical feline antics with the personality of his four-year-old nephew. So Figaro would end up becoming an endearing scene stealer. 
What a good call to to change from an adult cat that probably would would uh, be antagonistic towards Pinocchio to getting this cute, cute little little character in Figaro. Mm-hmm. And Walt liked Figaro so much. That's how Figaro became Minnie Mouse's kitten in a lot of her cartoon shorts. Oh, shoot. I have to watch those then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it's it's in maybe the Pluto shorts. Figaro will be in there as sort of the antagonist for Pluto. And because <laughs> um, Figaro was, was very mischievous around right? Pluto. Yeah, and he you can get, see that in his facial expressions. Yeah. Well, then that's what he did. If he captured the, you said the personality of his four-year-old nephew. Mm-hmm. So if he captured those, those are probably the facial expressions that we see on Figaro, right? When he screws up his face, when he doesn't like something, or, or. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Turns his nose up at Cleo when she's trying to kiss him and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we find him so cute. Yeah. Now, no one recalls why Geppetto also had a pet goldfish, because he didn't have one in the original story. But from the very beginning of the film's story development, he had a goldfish. At first, the writers didn't do much with the goldfish. In March 1938, Walt referred to the fish as Ferdinand. And this happened to be at the same time the Disney cartoon short, Ferdinand the Bull, was in production. Just two weeks later, the goldfish became female, and Walt named her Cleo. As Cleo was developed, she was was given a distinct personality and became a foil for Figaro and a beloved pet of Geppetto's who called her My Little Water Baby. And in March 1938, Walt said, we are trying to get a lot of personality in Cleo. Now, Cleo's design gradually changed as she was given more feminine characteristics with fins that worked like tiny veils, which would be mimicked in the Nutcracker Suite in Fantasia later on. Cleo was so closely associated with Figaro that Eric Larson's Figaro unit also animated Cleo's scenes. Larson animated several of her scenes, and animator Don Lusk animated most of Cleo, uh, Cleo's close-ups. Luskett assisted Larson in the animal unit for Snow White and became the specialist for Cleo. Walt was so pleased with Cleo that he said, that is going to be cuter than hell in this when she brushes against the finger like a cat. Yeah, they did a great job with Cleo. I mean, she's a beautiful little fish. You can't help but love her, I think, in in the film because of the personality that they give her. In the film, I mean, again, she's also expressive, and she's and she's loving. You could see that they poured that into into this little um, character. Yeah, with her expressions, and then yeah. her shyness hiding behind her tail like a veil. Yeah, and and like when she does that spin in her tail. Yeah, like is that, that's what you're talking about when she does that spin in her tail, just covers her face, and um, when you think about. Even in those days, as early as 1938, the artistry of showing a uh, transparent veil of a tail over her face, right? That the mm-hmm. the artwork that had to be done to to create that. Oh, absolutely! And the special effects. That's what we'll talk in our next episode about about that and some of the um, 
animation techniques that were developed um, as they created Pinocchio. Yeah, I was really impressed. But yeah, she's she's. I'm so happy that they added these two characters. They, I think, they gave so much life to this film. I agree, absolutely. Now, now we're going to look at going to start looking at some of the villains. So, from the very beginning, Walt was intrigued by the fox due to the sly imagery of foxes in children's literature and the role of the fox in Kaladi's story. Walt saw the fox as a fast-talking conman, a character type that was common in films, but not in animation. In a 1937 story conference, Walt said, I would plan the character of the fox and cat if you see them working a shell game. Walt then improvised a scene in which the fox delivered his spiel with the cat as his shill in an effort to cheat onlookers until they see Pinocchio on his way to school. Walt imagined the fox talking out of the corner of his mouth as he tried to get an unsuspecting victim to play his shell game. Now, Walt suggested several gags for the fox, but as the story developed, the fox's personality became more subtle and refined. By April 1938, Walt saw the fox as having pretensions to dignity with an air of shabbiness, similar to Charlie Chaplin and other comedians of the era. Walt acted out his movements while saying, he has a certain dignified walk. A cab drives by. You see the shadow of it? And a cigar butt comes out. From this dignity to the guy's scram for the cigar butt. The fox hooks the cat's pants, pulls him back, and gets the butt himself. And they're immediately back into the dignity stuff. Then they see Pinocchio coming along. This scene was soon dropped as the fox became associated with the theater and gives an elaborate description of theater life to Pinocchio as he detours the puppet from school to the marionette show. His shabby elegance was now the lost elegance of a faded actor. There were long discussions about the name of the fox. Walt disliked Honest John because it was too common for this character. The team worked to come up with a name that would be in keeping with the fox's delusions of grandeur. Suggested names included J. Willoughby Fox, S. Ashbole Smith, J. Overly Fowlfellow. Finally, in a compromise, his name became J. Worthington Fowlfellow, but in the film, he was called Honest John. So they got a a compromise, I mean, a true compromise, right? If Walt didn't like Honest John, but the guys are saying, how can we, how can we convince them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Walter Catlett, one of the busiest actors in Hollywood, was cast as the voice and live action model for the fox. Whilst the fox was being developed as a crafty con man, the cat was being developed as his sidekick and stooge. It was noteworthy that the film had completely different feline characters with Figaro the kitten as a somewhat typical cat and Gideon the cat as a human-like comedian. Both characters seem natural in the film, which is a testament to the artists who worked on both characters. Like Dopey and Snow White, the cat was a mute character. As the fox became more cunning, the cat became more dense. When the fox was smooth-talking Pinocchio, the cat was attempting to hit the puppet with a mallet. There was much debate about the cat's name. 
As Walt acted out the fox during story conferences, he referred to the cat by several names, including Throckmorton, Bertram, and Mortimer. Originally, the cat had dialogue and often said, me too, which became his name for much of 1938, until they settled upon the name of Gideon, or Giddy for short. Walt loved how the cat turned out for the film and had definite ideas for his personality. In a story conference, he said, the cat shouldn't have that goofy smile on his face when he pulls out the mallet. When the cat starts out after Pinocchio, he would be all business and with his tongue screwed up in the side of his mouth. Despite the character's slapstick antics, Walt wanted to make sure his maliciousness showed through. The plan to have the character be chatty was abandoned. Now, the voice actor for the cat was Mel Blanc, who who was, became known as the man of a thousand voices. He was already well known for his radio work on Burns and Allen, Abbott and Costello, The Jack Benny Show, and he would even be the host of his own show. And also for being the voice for Warner Brothers cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Pie, Sylvester, Foghorn Lakehorn, and The Road Runner. Pinocchio was Blank's only association with the Walt Disney Studio. Wow. Which is surprising given, you know, his vocal talent. Right. With with so many voices that he had available to him, I I it's it's a wonder that Walt only used used him only in this film and he only the the cat doesn't talk much, right? Right. So Yeah. Yeah, Blank recorded the cat's dialogue early in the film's development, and out of it, only one hiccup was used in the film. Mm. In a later interview, Blank said, I got $800 for one hiccup, which I think was a pretty high price. In reality, Blank was brought back to record a series of hiccups and perform the cat's live-action reference. Yeah, we couldn't tell if the cat was drunk or just really dumb. In, mm-hmm. in his actions. We were trying to figure that out because of the hiccups, I think, that he was doing. Yeah, that's true. Although I don't know if we do we see, I don't think we see him drink. No, I, I don't think we see him drink. He tosses things around, but I don't mm-hmm. remember him drinking. If he had a bottle or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Norm Ferguson was assigned to lead the fox and cat unit. Ferguson was one of the designers of the Disney animation style and was best known for animating Pluto and the Big Bad Wolf. He was also the leader in developing personality animation. John Lounsbury, who worked on Snow White, was a part of this unit and would become one of Walt's nine old men. Storyman Thornton He, better known as Teehee <laughs> teamed with storyman Ed Penner to write the comedy material for the fox and the cat. The wackier the gags, the more Walt liked them. Yeah, we were laughing out loud at, at uh, just how the cat went after, you know, with, with the mallet. And then he uh, was trying to help the fox, but he just kept hitting him on the head. I mean, we were laughing out loud at mm-hmm. that. So. That and the animation really is just so good because there's oh so much God. movement yeah. and it's so fluid. Well, you kind of forget that it's an animated feature. You're, I mean, you're, li- you're watching the story itself mm-hmm. and, and you, I, at least we did, we got kind of lost in, in watching what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. 
Okay, now to two our two most frightening characters we'll take a look at. Stromboli and the coachman. So if the fox and cat were seen as slapstick and conniving characters, then Stromboli is a terrifying character. In the book, Kaladi described him as Mangiafoco, the fire eater. And I apologize if I'm not pronouncing it correctly. The Disney story writers originally named the character Fire Eater before settling on Stromboli, named for the active volcanic island of Stromboli off the north coast of Sicily. Bill Teitler, who had also pioneered the Disney style of animation in the 1930s, was assigned to animate Stromboli. He was known as a specialist of large, powerful characters. So although Stromboli is in only two scenes, he leaves an impression. The puppet master has no redeeming qualities. Even when he is in a good humor, he is frightening. When in a bad temper, he explodes. Stromboli was the only character who did not change during the film's development. From the beginning, he was seen as a terrifying villain, and Titus' animation confirmed it. His appearance and actions were fine-tuned. Walt's suggestions included, carry small eyes on the guy. When he gets mad, they bulge as if they were going to pop out. In early versions of the story, Stromboli owned a marionette theater in the village. In September 1938, Walt said, I'm wondering if we would want to make this like one of those old shows that used to travel in wagons instead of a theater. So story writer Webb Smith suggested the character be a gypsy. The story immediately changed as the story writers developed a wagon show business, which led to the dramatic scene between Pinocchio and Stromboli in the wagon as the puppet is imprisoned in a birdcage. Yeah, I think I think putting him in a wagon it just makes it worse because he's taking away from his home, right? Mm-hmm. If if the, he was if they had a um a theater in the village, there's always the the potential that that Geppetto would come upon them this way. It's you feel like there's no hope for Pinocchio. He's stuck in a cage and they're going away. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, you're right. Because if it were a theater, he could just go home for the night and go back again. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. In this way, he was like, no. (laughs) As we well as we saw. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The other evil villain, the coachman, was less threatening outwardly, but just as sinister inside. In an early story conference, Walt stated he wanted to make the character out of the coachman who would be a villain, but seems likable. In mid-1938, the writers conceived the character as having a genial exterior that was a disguise. In one scene, he removes his pleasant smiling mask and reveals himself to be a sinister, evil-looking villain. This led to one of the most impactful scenes in the film, when the coachman's calm face is suddenly transformed into a close-up as he hisses, they never come back as boys. The coachman's animation was assigned to Norm Ferguson's unit, with Charles Nick Nichols being the character's principal animator. So yeah, that's that why was that scary. scene you found frightening, <laughs> that was the reason behind it. 
Yeah, it's and maybe that's what it was. Is at first he he seems like he's in you know kind of an innocuous character, and then that look that he had it just it 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 shocked me. Mm-hmm. So that was scary. I agree. And, just and so the lighting, cool. the yes. lighting effects that they did too really heightened that. Yeah, they yeah. he went to all angles. If I remember correctly, right? He went to that angular and the red, and it just looked a little. Yeah, you know, that big round face. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That sort of turned oval almost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, both Stromboli and the Coachman were voiced by Charles Jettles, who was well known in films for his dialects that allowed him to play numerous characters. He also served as a live action model for Stromboli. Teehee occasionally filled in as a live-action model for both Stromboli and the Coachman. Interesting. Now, our next one is um, Lampwick. In Kaladi's story, Pinocchio manages to survive the schemes of the fox, cat, and other villains before facing another formidable obstacle, peer pressure in the guise of a boy named Lucignolo. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Now, it's roughly translated into English as Candlewick, but he's better known to us as Lampwick. As the film story was developed, Lampwick wasn't included until late in the process and appeared in September 1938 as rough and surly boy Pinocchio meets on the coach heading to Pleasure Island. His personality was not developed as late as December 1938, and Walt expressed his dissatisfaction with this, believing the story should not be further developed until all the characters have been determined. Walt felt that Lampwick was too mild-mannered and wanted him to be developed as a swaggering punk. Said Walt, I would like to get more modern phraseology for this kid, Lampwick. Make it as slangy as we can. Just a tough kid. Now, ironically, the two characters who take an instant dislike to each other, Jiminy Cricket and Lampwick, have more contemporary American personalities compared to the other more European-style characters in the film. Walt had definite ideas for the voice casting of Lampwick. Writers had been using child actor Mickey Rooney as a model for Lampwick, but Walt warned them warned them away from that idea in November 1938. Walt wanted an, the actor Frankie Darrow as the voice and live action model for Lampwick. Darrow was well known for depicting tough kid characters in Warner Brothers films. Despite this, Darrow was not immediately cast in the role, even when Walt reminded them again in December that he wanted Darrow in this role. Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in early 1939, Cliff Edwards recorded some of Lampwick's dialogue along with Jiminy Cricket's. When the studio assembled the early press material for the film, the role of Lampwick Lampwick was left blank with the line, quote, voice and live action not cast on 3-1-39, unquote. However, no candidates were ever auditioned for the role, and in June 1939, Darrow was cast as the voice of Lampwick. 
Australian-born comedian Clyde Cook was hired as Lampwick's live action model. He had appeared in a series of Hal Roach comedies and was often cast as a timid character due to his slight nature. Although his personality was the opposite of Lampwick's, his work as an, an eccentric dancer and acrobatic gags made him perfect for the character. He contributed to Lampwick's swaggering strut, suggesting he is looking for trouble. Fred Moore was the sole animator of Lampwick, and it has been suggested that Lampwick's mischievous grin resembled Moore's characteristic grin. He put a little of himself in that. Mm -hmm. You know, I never really thought of Lampwick as, as a villain, though. But when you look at it, when they talk about peer pressure, that's really interesting that um, they incorporated that theme into the story. Yeah, yeah. And he encourages, you know, Pinocchio to act out, you know, breaking things at Pleasure Island, smoking cigars, drinking beer. So he was definitely a bad influence, but he gets his comeuppance. Oh, yeah, he Because does. at the end, he becomes sympathetic as he turns into a um, donkey. But uh, And it's interesting. I have not seen the recent live-action version of the film with Tom Hanks, but they say that the Pleasure Island scene was really watered down. Because, it was. Because – in in the original you know original pinocchio children saw as you were saying mary jo they saw there is a repercussion for bad behavior and and but i guess in the live action one they drink root beer instead of real beer and all that well what's the harm in that you know so um again i i you know it's a shame that from what i hear they watered down sort of the um the potential lesson children could draw exactly. from that scene. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted. Now that I've seen uh, the original so re- so recently, I want to see the live action again and, and compare those scenes because I think that what happens at Pleasure Island, where the boys are, you know, running rampant and and doing whatever they want, and then what happens to them is is would be such a sobering lesson for young kids. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, we remarked on it. Um, some of my family members remarked on that um, and, and how it, it did leave a lasting impression. So I want to see if the live action, you know, it, th- keeping that in the back of my mind and seeing the live action, if it leaves any impact on, on how you behave. And like you said, Michael, the repercussions that would come from, from not doing the right thing. Right, right. They, there's definitely a punishment. And, you know, I, I don't know, when you were, I'm a little older than you, but when you were younger, was jackass a swear word? It was in my house. Uh, my house, you know how they have, like, G-rated language? Mm-hmm. What's above G-rated language? We weren't allowed to PG. like say stupid, and no, it was above. Mm-hmm. It was it was super G-rated. So, oh, okay. um, jackass wouldn't have been something said. Although I heard it, you know, it was it was said. It was said, but I remember in when I heard it said, stated in Pinocchio, it shocked me 
when I was little. It still is shocking. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strong word. But, mm-hmm. but the vernacular from, from that time period was a lot different than what, you know, um, kind of like what we use with. Yeah, we, we, when I grew up where we, we didn't use the word stupid and you couldn't call somebody a liar and, and stuff like that. So, so hearing those types of words kind of is, is a little shock to my system still yeah, yeah. to this day. Yeah, I agree. So, well, now, many find Monstro the whale who swallows our protagonists and gives them a fearsome chase after their escape as the most spine tingling villain in the film. This character appeared in a Kaladi story as Peshi Khan, which translates as dogfish. Again, I probably mispronounced it. In dogfish. some translations, it's terrible shark. And um, in the 1911 film and the 1937 stage play, he is depicted as a whale. In the book, he is described to be larger than a five-story building, could swallow a railroad train whole, and was notoriously cruel. That would be pretty terrifying. I'm sorry, talking over you. I'm just saying that would be terrifying to be uh, a – we use him as a whale here, but a a five-story building that huge, to have that chase after you, yeah, that's – definitely terrifying oh absolutely even though you know people who love whales and their knowledge will say whales don't act that way (laughs) it was still it was still terrifying Yeah. yeah from the beginning story writers decided to portray this character as a whale of huge proportions when walt described the whale chasing the tuna he said we should have a lot of roaring and vibration every time the whale goes by it should shake the camera and drown out everything the whale's cruel cunning nature was established early on when he sees the fish and pretends to be asleep until the fish come closer in early story notes it states that walt wanted an awe-inspiring name for the whale In the underwater scene in which Pinocchio asks fish for directions to the whale, Walt wanted the name to strike fear in the fish. Walt suggested the name Mamba. By June 1938, the name of the whale was Monstro, and it never changed. As we've already mentioned, Bill Teitler was known for animating large, powerful characters, and he seemed perfect for animating the largest character of all in the film. But once again, much of Monstro's animation was handed over to emerging animator Wolfgang Wooly Reitherman, another who would go on to be known as a member of Walt's Nine Old Men. Rather than taking over sole animation of the character, Reitherman and Teitla collaborated, with Teitla animating the initial rough animation and Reitherman polishing and cleaning up the final drawings. Reitherman shared these responsibilities with the junior animators in his unit, so they would all have the opportunity to work on a scene. As Ollie Johnston later said, there was a lot of erasing. (laughs) 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 This sharing of animation responsibilities for Monstro was necessary, not only because his movements had to be convincing, but they had to convey the sheer size of the character. All of his movements had to be mammoth in scale and laborious to convey convey his epic size. To make the sounds for Monstro's movement, they filled rubber balloons with lead shot and shook them. Mm -hmm. 
The animators also made a miniature whale skeleton. It was five feet long in which they could twist and turn as needed. They also made a rib cage and lungs that could be pumped to simulate real breathing as a live action reference. Providing the roars of Monstro is Thurl Ravenscroft, whose booming voice made him the perfect choice. He has several other Disney credits to his name, including 101 Dalmatians and the Aristocats. Outside of film, Ravenscroft may be best known for voicing characters in Walt Disney's theme park attractions, including the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. He was also the uncredited voice of Kellogg's Frosted Flakes mascot, Tony the Tiger. They're great. That's right. (laughs) I'll always remember that. I just want to mention something. You know, now that you talk about how horrifying Monstro was, it reminded me, you know, Monstro's at Disneyland, right? He's, oh yes. Uh, when you first go on Storybook Land Canal boats, and and his eye opens and closes. When my son Nick was little, he refused to go on the Storybook Land Canal boats because he was convinced that Monstro would eat us. And I never, I never really kind of got it until you until you explained. You know, you went over the whole thing. Um, right now, when you described Monstro and and how they made him so menacing and how huge he was. Of course, to a child, because my kids were little. They, I mean, they were weaned on on Disney films, so I'm pretty sure I watched. I had them watch Pinocchio when they were toddlers. No wonder he was terrified when we went <laughs> to Disneyland because he had seen Pinocchio and he knew that this monster, you know, this monstrous whale, we can say, was uh, was not good. And here his mom is telling him, "Hey, let's." Let's go on the ride that goes through the whale's mouth. And I'm, he's like, I'm gonna, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed you to Monstro. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what he was thinking, you know, and, until he got older and he could see that, you know, of course that that we'd be okay. But it, it was a few years before I could convince him to go on that attraction. Mm-hmm. I could so, see that. Yeah. Yeah. They, I, and and do they still? It's been. A, I don't remember the whole spiel for. The storybook canal boats, which is one of my favorite attractions at Disneyland. Yeah. But remember they used to say that, you know, that when Monstro sneezed, he blew out his tail. He blew off his oh, tail. And that's why know, we could go through him. Yes. I wonder if that, you know what? I'm going to pay attention next time I go to Disneyland and I'm going to specifically go on that attraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when I don't mind if it's a long line because yeah. the detail and that attraction is so wonderful. It has a direct connection to Walt. And if you get a good um, guide on your boat, they, they tell some good stories. Oh, yes. Because you know, sometimes they deviate just a little from the script. Um, so. This this isn't really about the, the, the secondary animations, but I just, when I watched Pinocchio, and as you're describing what Walt Disney said about the characters and that they would do this and they do that, I could, to me, when Jiminy Cricket was talking, I could hear Walt Disney talking. I don't know why I had that feeling, but um, I could, you can definitely see his influence and his participation in this Mm -hmm. film all the way through. Well, it was as Walt described the cricket to Ward Kimball, that's how Ward started to create him. And as I mentioned, when we talked about Jiminy Cricket, also, Walt had an uncle that he really loved that had passed away. And as Walt 
was just telling Ward about him, Ward started to incorporate those qualities into the development of Jiminy Cricket. Yeah, this is the first animated feature that I felt so connected to Walt Disney himself while I watched the story. Yeah, and this was, in everything I read, this was sort of the height of of Walt Disney's, um, uh, you know, involvement in a film. Because then as time went on after this, he became less and less involved because he, the studio was growing. And then later on, he was planning Disneyland and all that. So this is probably the one that he was the most involved in, this and Snow White. Yeah, you can, you can surely tell. Well, in our next installment, we'll explore the film's legacy, including its music and songs, special effects, and its release. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. Well, there was a lot. We were talking um, before the show, and Mary Jo and I had, like, lists of things we wanted to bring up. This week in Disney history had a lot going on. What I chose, Mary Jo, was one that we discussed on the Disneyland show. Um, Well, I almost chose that one, and then I – and I was wondering if you were going to, so I'll wait and see. But um, I decided to go with, since we're talking so much about the different animators and people involved in making this film, I'm going back to June 9th, 1984, when the Disney Channel debuted, which what I think is probably my favorite series they ever had, was the Disney Family Album. This was back in the early days of, of the Disney Channel when I watched it routinely it was so good um anyway this series spotlighted um different disney artists and performers and this uh this inaugural episode is about clarence ducky nash who's the voice of donald duck and they released it on june 9th because it's the birthday of donald duck so the series was narrated by buddy ebson and there's going to be there's 20 half hour episodes in all and they talk about the Sherman brothers. Um, they talk about the nine old men. They talk about special effects. They, and, and um, Jimmy McDonald, who is behind those. And it, it, it's so wonderful because the thing is, is that all these people were alive. And so wow. we get to meet them. We get to see where they lived uh, as they talk and they talk about Walt. This is, these are this is a jewel in the crown of the Disney Channel. We need and the Disney Vault to be brought back. Well, we need it added to the Disney Plus channel and have an hour where they focus on these different series, Michael, because that sounds amazing. It is. And it's somebody somehow, I don't know how they did it in 1984. Somebody's recorded these and they are on YouTube. So you can oh. watch it. Now they haven't been, you know, cleaned up for HD or anything like that, but um, they're still wonderful. I really recommend, you know, go on the YouTube and find this series. It is. And what are we going to search for again? Tre- a treasure. It's called the Disney family album. Okay. It, it is a treasure. And the show will be nominated for two Cable Ace Awards in Best Informational Series category and later spark the idea for the Disney Legend Awards. So that's why this needs to be preserved and reintroduced. Um, also, it has a great opening sequence in it, and it was that was done by John Lasseter. That was one of his first jobs. 
with Disney was to create that opening sequence for this series. Wow. I'm definitely going to look it up. I I mean, I, I have and my favorites. I have the full, um, uh, and it's not high quality film, but it's the entire Tiki Room show because I love uh, mm-hmm. often the Offenbach um, part yes. that they no longer have anymore. I love that song. So I'll watch stuff like that. I'll watch other things from the early days um, of Disney, Disneyland and, and some of their shows. So this right here will be something that I definitely want to, wanted to look at yeah it's worth it and so i highly recommend this to everybody and thank goodness somebody recorded this and has made it available so right. watch it before disney decides i know <laughs> no you can't have it nobody can have it <laughs> so, like they've recently done for quite a few things that they removed from the um yeah i don't quite understand why they're doing that from disney plus when um I would think I they'd think, want to put more things to keep people. I think it's they don't want to pay the residuals, things mm. like that, on on I guess series that were not viewed enough. I suppose, like one that I wish will come out on DVD is um, the Timmy Failure film. Did you ever see that? No. Oh my gosh, it was so delightful. It's about a little boy who runs his own detective agency, at least in his head. And he has a wild imagination. So he has a, it reminds me of Calvin and Hobbes a little in that he has like a sidekick polar bear. Oh my <laughs> um, God. He gets some, and the thing is he thinks he's a detective. He does not, he misses the most obvious clues. He walks right by them or ignores them. I mean, it was adorable. And the little boy that played the actor was terrific. I've no idea who it is. And he pulled that. I really want that one. I would like to have the, you know, the a video of that. There's just, it was there, really good. Yeah. There's just so much good content. And this isn't one of my, um, isn't my choice, but I also saw that this week is the anniversary of what, Three Lives of Thomasina. Mm-hmm. And I loved that movie when I was a kid watching it. And I was like, how can I watch it? And you, they say you can rent it on Netflix or something. But it starred Karen, the, the two kids that, Dotris, that started. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah she and um, the, Matthew kids, Garber. Yep, before they were in Mary Poppins. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, everything just kind of ties into each other. And Do yeah. you remember seeing that, that movie? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think I have it on DVD. Excuse me, we, but we um, I love it. I, I thought Cat Heaven was so clever. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I, With I the really whole Egyptian I, thing motif, yeah. I, I so. might break down and rent it just because it, it brings back such such good memories of, of watching these movies. And they're good stories. Yeah, and when it when it um, when it played on the wonderful world of color when I was a little boy, that's the first time I saw it. It was a, I think a two part episode, and I don't know, I don't know how old I was. I must have been like seven or something. And I kept, you know how whenever they say yes, they say I. Yeah. So I say, well, I went around the house just doing that. <laughs> I drove my mother out of her mind. She she told me in no uncertain words to stop it. I was enough. <laughs> did you tell her I when she said that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, and I think she slapped me when I did it too. Yeah, 
I have a very vivid memory of that because she didn't hit me often. But yeah, she slapped me (laughs) across the face. She was done. Mm -hmm. She was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what do you have for us? Oh my gosh. So mine's not even Disneyland related. It's it's Walt Disney World related. And um so in uh in on June seventh, nineteen seventy-five Walt Disney World's version of Mission to Mars um, that was developed with NASA debuted in Tomorrowland. So it replaced the Flight to the Moon attraction, which had opened at the begin, you know, in 1971, um, almost at the beginning when Walt Disney World opened. Um, and guests first entered a viewing area known as Mission Control, which was modeled after a typical Mission Control Center with chairs, control panels for about. Um, they had um, audio animatronic technicians whose backs were to the audience. And then facing the audience was the flight director, Mr. Johnson, who was voiced by radio and TV announcer, George Walsh. And he shows, he showed like film clips and explained how man made, uh, excuse me, how man had made uh, numerous advances in space travel. And then after that pre-show, the guests board their space ca- spacecraft, which was, and, and you'll remember this too, Michael, because I remember doing this at Disneyland. It was a circular theater mm-hmm. with stadium-like seating. And in the middle of it was a circular flat screen. Well, they had two, one on the ceiling and one on the floor. And it would show you as you would leave Earth and then you would see, I'm pretty sure in Walt Disney World, you'd see the Magic Kingdom. For us, we'd see Disneyland disappear and then see the moon and then Mars, you know, appear up on the screen above. Um, the third officer Collins was voiced by veteran Pete Renaud day served as the guest in flat narrator. Um, and the reason why I picked this is because for two reasons, one is when I was a kid, I don't know if we were just more naive in those days or what, but I truly thought that we left earth and that we were riding into outer space mm-hmm. and that we were, and we were landing. And I just remember the wonder, you know, as when you're a child, um and and in the in the innocence how you just you go on these attractions and you really believe that you're sailing to space or you're you know going on a pirate ship or you're doing all of these things that we get to do at at the Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom and some of the other parks now and uh it, it was a nice reminder of that and then the other reason i um chose this is because that Mission of Mars closed its doors in 1993, then reopened as the um, extra terror terror terrestrial alien yeah. encounter, which my kids and I went on um, when we first went to Walt Disney World in 1999. And I remember we went after hours. I had got that three hour that package where you could go. Oh, and I, right. I took, yeah. So my dad and his wife stayed at the at the hotel. We were at Caribbean Beach Resort. I took the kids and, and we went and had a wonderful time at the magic kingdom and we went on the extra you know, alien encounter. And after we went on it, my daughter Kelly says, that was great. Let's go on it again. And then she said, and I'll go on it with my eyes open this time. She had <laughs> her eyes after she realized that we weren't going to be eaten by aliens, she wanted to experience it with her eyes open. And, and again, it's just the innocence of kids and the joy mm-hmm. that you get. Um, going on these attractions, so so these uh these things that happen just you know uh really make me 
smile. And then today is, as you know, that it's known as Stitch's Great Escape. So my question to you is four attractions in one spot. Is that a record or is, are there, is there any other location at the parks that have had at least four attractions? I don't think so. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Yeah, I, that that kind of jumped out at me also. So, yeah. although did they? Yeah, I guess they. I guess they had the. Did they open up with Rocket to Mars, or did they open up with Rocket to the Moon, like Disneyland did, and then went to Mars? Well, it said that that it replaced that uh, Flight to the Moon was the first attraction. Okay, it was. Okay. And then, and then, and that was in 1971. So four years later, they were they were already going to Mars. You know, leave the the moon behind. So yeah, well, I think when it was built, we had already landed on the moon. I think that was oh yeah, part of 71 because yeah. we landed in 1969. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Well, you know, talking about naive. Remember the adventures through inner space that we called the mighty microscope. Yep. Where you get people, re- even adults, believed you you got shrunk down. I used to watch the people getting on so that I could see when they were in the microscope uh-huh. and I would go, Oh yeah, there's a lady in the red shirt. There she is in the microscope. You know, I, I truly, did you ever believe that it was real when you were little or? I you don't know. Old? I thought it was very suspect. <laughs> so, so I so thought these people, <laughs> these people aren't moving, <laughs> but I've heard stories of like, you know, like a mother, who who put her kids on the attraction and they had agreed to wave at her when they went by. And oh she go, she went to a cast member very worried because she didn't see her children go by. Okay, so adults. In their miniaturized version. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was this is back when this kind of when it, it truly was um state of the art, brand new. You had never experienced the things that we were experiencing at the at Disneyland. Um, in, in a lot of these attractions, because there were no videos or, or anything, and I mean, I don't. I'm not going to go into the. In, I could I could talk on and on about the innovativeness mm-hmm. of of these yeah. of the parks. The 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 well, item that I, I almost chose, I thought you might was it was in our in this time period here the the week we're talking about when remember when. Uh, Disneyland announced they were going to build the big four-star luxury hotel at the <laughs> end of downtown Disney, and uh, and oh they tore God. down. What did they tear down? The carousel. Uh, oh yeah, they tore down the car- they tore down the yeah. carousel hotel, oh, and they, they were going to put the parking lot behind it, mm-hmm. and they With were the going to the walkway. Yeah, and they were going to skip everybody else on on Harbor Harbor Boulevard. Yeah. It goes straight to Disneyland from there. Oh, and it was such a horrible design. Yeah. And, oh, gosh. Oh, the hotel itself. I, I don't know how many times we discussed it. And, yeah, a lot. And, I, 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 and just the memory of how disgusted you were with the lack of theming <laughs> of that hotel. It, it's, and all of us were very disappointed, right? But you were audibly disgusted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was just wouldn't have fit in as well. So no, but what a what a mess came of that whole. That really, because uh, it project. affected it affected Disneyland with the Walt Disney Studios relationship with the um, Anaheim, you know, government. Yeah, and all that, you know, in a negative way. Yeah, definitely. Uh-uh. It took quite a few years for them to 
uh, I think they're in a better place now. I think when Anaheim, during the pandemic, when Disneyland shut down for a year and they, their tax revenue dropped oh. dramatically, they had to slash their city budgets and all of that. So I think they've now come to appreciate Disneyland once again. So, um, and they're they, all for they, this now. This expand this Disneyland Forever. What it, what is it yeah. called? Disneyland Forward. Forward. They're they're very excited about that, from what I hear. Because yeah, they, of the they've added- been years to come up with something out of you know to be to be the phoenix out of ashes. You know, yeah, yeah. Especially if they if they go through with with the most of the plans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Disneyland, I wanted to remind folks about our our Diz Unplugged Dreams Unlimited Travel event at the Disneyland Resort. It begins August 4th. And then where they are, we are renting out probably my least favorite area in Disneyland, <laughs> but I think I'm the minority in that. And that we are um, renting out um, Pixar Pier. And also, um, I guess it's being changed. The name is Pixar Gardens now. I thought it was. Oh, really? Paradise guess, Gardens? Being changed. Well, that makes Paradise sense. Gardens. Yeah. Uh, this is what, at least this is what John is calling it. So I wonder if they gave him a little, hey, we're changing the name uh, okay. <laughs> preview. But on the 4th at 830, you um, will be able to enter the park with with the ticket the event ticket, go to Pix and we'll go to Pixar Gardens. And we're going to have a private reception there from nine to eleven thirty PM. And there's going to be food, beverages, and exciting guests. I think, you know, John always manages to have characters at these special events. So I'm wondering if there maybe will be some Pixar characters or something there. I, I but, wouldn't be surprised. He's so yeah. good at doing that. And- he is. These gardens are really a nice area to get together. They're outdoor, but mm-hmm. at that time of night in August, it's going to be beautiful. It is. It's going to be perfect. And then from 11.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. is the private Pixar Pier Party. And you can ride that in credit coaster until you <laughs> hurl. Um, Toy Story Midway Mania, that's probably the one I'll go on. The Pixar Pal Around, I have never been. Well, I don't think I've been on that. I went on it once. Finally, I think I went on it with Nancy, okay. and um, it was it was actually fun. Well, I've been on it with when it was Mickey's Fun Wheel, and and I've oh, never Pixar been pal, pal around. I was thinking yeah. of the um, of the uh, in and out characters. Mickey's the pal around. I love that. I go on that all the but time. I have never been on the swinging cages. Are you going to so, go on them this time? Well, we originally said it was going to be me, John Sakari, and you were going yeah. to ride it. Now I don't, you're not going to be there. And John's, I don't know if John is going to come. So, oh, um, really? He might not make it? I don't know. I have okay. no idea. So, um, well, I'll, I'll tell, cause Kelly's going. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell Kelly and, and, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah but, I'm, I'm bummed to, to miss it. And so, Nick and Yasmin. But. Yeah. But, and then there's Inside Out Emotional Whirlwind. That's the one you were thinking of. There used to be Flicks Flyer or something. Yeah. That's no, when I wrote it with my granddaughter. It was fun. Yeah, that and one it, is a fun one. And, that, and that's a, an attraction that truly did change lands. Yes. 
Oh, yeah. They just picked it up, moved it, and rethemed it. Um, Jesse's Critter Carousel and Silly Symphony Swings, another one I have never been on. That because I was is- worried I was going to get sick. Oh, <laughs> well, take your Bonine or Dramamine, whatever it is yeah. you take. That one's a fun att- – because you, you get that fresh air as you go around. And and so there's, there's swings that go in a circle, and they raise you up. Um, and you go and, – and they play really cool – uh, silly symphony music. Mm-hmm. Oh, I th- I like the way they themed it. Yeah, you know, um, from the Orange Stinger, what was what it used to be. And then yeah. um, the games of the boardwalk will be open, so you can test your skills with Midway Fun. And the prizes you are you receive is the satisfaction of knowing you may have won. There are no prizes. <laughs> I think it's I think it's cool because how many times did you just want to try these to see yeah. if you could make it in and never had that opportunity and now you can. You know, mm-hmm. you can throw those baskets. They have what I think four four games that on the um the I think boardwalk. So, yeah. Yeah. So and um tickets are on sale. Um uh, right now they're $125, which when you think that this runs until 1 a.m. You know, that's yeah. pretty good. And you're going to have food and drinks and all kinds of stuff. So I, I think John did a good job keeping that price down. Also, if you um, book a room, that they do have a block of rooms, um, discounted Disneyland Hotel, and I think Grand Californian Adventure. You, um, If you book through Dreams Unlimited Travel, you your rooms, you get a ticket to the event automatically. So... Um, Anyway, and and then on the next day, that's the fourth, but there's but wait, there's more. On August 5th, there's going to be a Diz Unplug Live podcast. Um, location and time is to be announced. At first it said it was at the Grand Californian, but now I notice it says location and time to be announced. Oh. In order to attend the live podcast, you have to have an event ticket. So it, you and can't that makes just sense. go to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And then the fourth through the sixth, there'll be various meet and greets with podcast team members and all of that will be determined as well. And that's all included with the events. You know, when you walk by me looking green after I've ridden <laughs> Pixar pal around, you know, pal around, you know, I'll well, wave at you. That's my meet and greet. <laughs> so you don't want them to stick a, a turkey leg under your nose after you've been on the Pixar pal yeah. So anyway, so for more information and links to different things I just talked about, um, just go on to disboards.com. And I think it's um, it's posted like on the very top on, on the podcast thread. So um, anyway, so that's so that's that. So so looking forward to seeing you all there. Now, I know both you and I went and saw the, since we're talking about films, the yeah. live action version of The Little Mermaid. Live action, although a big chunk of it is still animated. <laughs> so, um, but, so what are your thoughts, Mary Jo? And then I will share mine. Okay. Um, I went in, so I haven't been a big fan of the live action remake films. Mm-hmm. So, but I was a little hopeful when I went to see the little mermaid and I have to say that I really, really, really enjoyed the, the film. I don't know if I say I love the film because I love the animated feature, but man, I enjoyed the film and I liked all the songs, um, including I, I listened to the, to the show this week, 
um, to the Diz Unplugged show and, and they kind of didn't like one of the songs. Scuttlebutt. Um, I loved it. I agreed with the Orlando team. You I did not yeah, care for the song. I think you guys are more discerning. I, I'm, I, I think I'm the targeted audience because um, there was nothing I didn't like about the movie. The parts that they didn't have, that they didn't include from the animated feature didn't bother me. The parts that they added, I enjoyed seeing. And I like, I like the scuttlebutt song. And I thought that Melissa McCarthy was deliciously mm-hmm. bad as Ursula. I thought she did a great job. So tell me what you think. Cause I know you're, you're, uh, you have more experience. Um, no, no, I was waiting for a different word. <laughs> well, I was going to say you're more you're more discerning with it. Oh, no, no, I didn't want to use it again. Maybe more critical probably would have been a better one. <laughs> um, but I did not care for it as much as you did. I I went in, you know, cautiously optimistic. Um, I thought. All with one exception, I liked all the actors. I thought they were superb. Halle Bailey was wonderful, and I am I really looking forward to seeing her in the um, the film version of the musical Color Purple. I think she's going to be spectacular in that. I think she has a long and wonderful career ahead. But I'm someone that the Disney characters need to be on point. And we all know what, you know, I, I think of what Chuck Jones said, um, what to, you know, was, you know, animated Bugs Bunny Nethers. And he always said, you have to make sure the pixies fly um, right side up, something like that. Mm. And what it meant was people go into a film with certain expectations. And if you don't meet those expectations, the film's going to fail. We went in knowing this is what Ariel is supposed to look like. And she didn't. And I have a problem with Disney's live action ones not remaining on point with their main characters. Now, bring in other diverse. Like, I like how they made her sisters, you know, diverse because they came from different seas, mm-hmm. which are in different parts of the world. And they reflected that. I thought that was very clever. So, but I don't know. Uh, so I had that. So the thing is, is they weren't on point with the character, but I loved Halle Bailey. So I don't know quite how to bring those two things together. And and to it. me, she, she, you know, being the live action, she seemed more in character because that's how I would think a mermaid's hair would be like as compared as, yeah, or, or <laughs> like, yeah, braid rather, or that look to it rather than flowing. And because mm-hmm. they're under the sea, they're not there. I mean, they don't even know how to use a, a, a dingle hopper, right? Right. right. So. <laughs> So no, but I but I get it when yeah. when you go with with uh, especially if it's a Disney film, how that could be a little um, an adjustment. For well, me. and then you have two versions of now of Ariel in the parks that in doesn't, the meet and greets, and yeah. so I don't know. I just I don't care for that. I want every. I, I'm very exact. I want everything to somehow in some in some sense be the same. But her performance was fantastic. I thought that they did a good job making us believe of the the relationship between her and Eric. Yeah. Prince Eric. I thought that was very well done. And um, 
She did I, I a didn't... great job not being able to speak and still yeah. getting um Well, she and... was able to sing, have the inner dialogue so we could sort oh, of hear true. her sometimes. But uh which was fine. I actually I like that song that was added, her inner dialogue. I like that we mm-hmm. saw more of the island and you you saw Jody Benson in it, right? Oh heck yeah. I yeah. I, I gave an audible gasp and in, in delight mm-hmm. when I saw Jody I was, Benson. I was so happy that they did that. Yeah. So a nice homage to her. And and then I so I like that. I um I thought some of the CG was it was not consistently good. Um they had okay, some. Okay, so tell me the ones that you did like, the CG that you did like, because I I had Characters that I liked and characters that I didn't like. I, you know, part of my problem is, and this is the problem I had with the remake of The Lion King. When you make the animals look real, you lose, you lose their ability to express themselves the way they can in animation. Um, and you don't expect a crab and a, and a fish to sing, but they, but they're, they're dead. I mean, they're dead eyes. They, they don't have facial expressions because in real life they don't. So that kind of thing, that's why I prefer animation over these live action remakes. Yeah. One of many reasons is that the animal characters can't be as expressive and emote very well. I thought they did a better job with Sebastian than they did with their, with some of their other um, animated characters or, mm-hmm. you know, CGI um, animals. I thought that maybe because his eyes could move. Yeah, um, yeah. And so. and because he's not a funny guy, right? So he's not going to smile. He's always worried and and stuff like that. Um so I I took that and I loved Scuttle. Um I was kind of disappointed in Flounder. Um Yeah. Because they didn't of exactly get Flounder what you're a whole saying. Lot. Yeah. Okay, Scuttle. I am so over <laughs> Aquafina. So <laughs> over her. She is in my opinion a one note actress. She does not act. She appears as herself in different roles. She, she was the same in, in Rhea and the last dragon or whatever yeah, that film was called. I mean, uh, it, what, what that character she was in, in, um, Oh, the Marvel film. I can't think of it. it she's the same. She is absolutely the same. And I think they need to let her go and let her do other things because I don't think she's a good actress whatsoever. And I hated her song. <laughs> it didn't fit in. And I think part of the, maybe the reason I hated it could have been because it was her. And okay. maybe, maybe if they had another voice actor in that role, I would have been better i would have received more bit more open to the song i don't know could be i i'm um, not i mean i think that she's ran the gamut of of interpreting any any more disney because of her limitations right and also what what was that saying you know that she ran the emotions from a to b (laughs) saying that's pretty much her so um so she and and Scuttle's a central character, so that bothered me. What really bothered me was the under the sea scene. They didn't change the lyrics. Sebastian is describing the instruments the undersea creatures are playing, but they're not playing instruments. 
I and agree I with thought, you. What what were they thinking? They changed other lines. Why didn't they change those? And that again is also the limitation where in animation you could show them playing instruments and you didn't question where they got them from. But in um when it's when it's photorealistic or whatever you want to call it, they can't do that. And I think that lessened the that scene. A bit, even though it was still fun and all that. But what really bothered me, and this is where I, I, this dropped the film really low in my estimation was, oh, I thought Melissa McCarthy, first of all, was great. Loved her. She did a terrific job. I was hoping you would say that that's the part that, that dropped the, no, I thought she did such a good job. I didn't want to leave her out because she's a main character in there. I thought she was great. I, I really enjoyed her. But the way they rewrote the ending, really, this caused me to dislike the film. Because in the beginning, um, Ariel saves Prince Eric from the burning ship and, and brings him to shore. At the end of the animated film, Eric has his hero moment where he then rescues Ariel by killing the um, sea witch. They robbed him of that in the live action film. That's Ariel saved his life at the end again. And he's just floundering around in the water, trying to keep his head above it. And, and then when when Ariel tells her father, you know, what she did and Eric was there. Well, if I were the father, I would have said, yeah, well, what did he do? What use was he? Uh, They, they, that ruined the film for me absolutely ruined it that the the male character doesn't have his hero moment and i would like to know why if there's a writer listening to this show you need to tell me why you made that change because that was a conscious decision to rob a male character of his heroic moment so i think that's a i think that's a valid point and and it didn't occur to me um but now that you say it it would have been a better ending. Well, and well it, it would have been the right they're ending. Like, they're like right. bookends. Yeah. Ariel is the hero in the beginning. And then Eric is the hero at the end as he saves the woman he loves. Yeah. Just as Ariel saved the man she loves at the beginning of the film. So it was the perfect compliment when they wrote it for the um, animated version. So that's why it dropped. Those are all the reasons why it dropped way down for me. I still enjoyed it though. And, um, you know, I, I would, I'd probably watch it again when it's on Disney plus. I won't go back to the theater to see it, but, um, I'd watch it again. It's not there, you know, there were worse live action films. I was, I was going to say, there's the not many live actors that I would watch, but this one I would. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so, so that's our thoughts on the little mermaid. I I have a question for you though, of of the live action, um, um, knowing your opinion, um, regarding live actions, but is there any of live actions that you would, um, count as, as the one, if you had, if you, I'm forcing you to choose one that you like the most. The Cinderella. 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 
Absolutely. They did everything right with that. They kept true to the story. They were pretty on point with the characters. You know, they had to glamour up, um, you know, the, the evil stepmother, Lady Tremaine and the, and the, and the evil stepdaughters. Um, well, they're not even evil. They're like self-centered and obnoxious and rude. But, um, the stepmother is evil. She's sinister and conniving and duplicitous and all that. Um, they did a great job with that. They, they got the dress right. That was important. But they, they explored Cinderella a little more. She was a little more, um, assertive, which I liked. And she, so she was more of an equal with the prince, but they did it in a really good way. I thought, um, you know, they changed the fairy godmother a little, but she was still bumbling and all that. I loved it. I, I just thought that, um, they stayed true to the original animated version and the things they added to it complemented it really well. Oh, that's good. I, so, that's one that I haven't seen. And I think mm-hmm. I had, um, seen enough animated features that I just wasn't interested in seeing that one, but I think it's on Disney Plus. It is. You, I think you will like it. Watch it and let me know. I've watched that probably a dozen times. Oh, wow. Okay. That film. I, I really like that film. So, um, and it, and stay for the end, stay through the credits because the fairy godmother has a last word to share. Thank you. And it's very funny. It's very funny. So, um, anyway. So that's my, what about yours? Do you have one that, you know, is sort of your go-to live action film? Well. Re- of the remakes. I, of the remakes. So I re- I like Little Mermaid enough, but I also like the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I, I like that too. The, the Pete's Dragon is another one I like because it completely oh, yeah, changed Dragon. it. Yeah. And it was a really nice story. I like that one too. So, but yeah, I'm I'm not too, I haven't been too fond. I I think the worst one for me would be the Lion King. Um, although I did like um, Timon and Pumbaa, but I I just had a I I couldn't connect with that one. Yeah, I think for me it was the remake of Lady and the Tramp that went on Disney Plus. So it was like their opening film or something when they when it came online. I think you know that's one of my all-time favorite um, animated features besides Bambi. It, it is mine I, too, but I did really? not care for the remake. I, I couldn't finish watching the remake, so I kind of forgotten all about it. Yeah, so. and I've not watched Pinocchio because Craig, when Craig tells me after thirty minutes he turned it off, I thought, okay, this must be bad. <laughs> but I will have to watch it. Yeah, I think you should just to. I think you need to. It's very to me was very different than the animated feature. Like I said, I'm going to watch it again, but I'm definitely going to watch the original Pinocchio again because it's such a lovely depiction of that story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, now I want to read the book in English. book is very different. Very oh, yeah. different. So is if you, have you ever read the book Bambi? Yes. When I was a boy, I did. Yeah. It's, it's, it also is different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a good story though. Mm-hmm. So I remember, I think at Scholastic Book Club, I bought it one year. So um, through school, I think so. for my tenth birthday, my parents gave me a book of the book of the month club, and I got oh. two books every two new books every month, and got you know books like Bambi the Black Stallion and a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. t- Phantom Tollbooth and stuff like that. Oh yeah, Disney needs to do classics. that one. 
Yeah, there was one done years ago, a live action one when I was a boy, because the kid that played Eddie Munster started it. Really? So it was that long ago? It was that long ago, yeah. (laughs) So, anyway, but, um, so we're, we're talking about Disneyland. So have you been to Disneyland recently? Is there any observations you have? How are things going? How um, are the crowds? What do you think of what they're doing in downtown Disney? Did you do I, your last drop on um, No, Splash I didn't. Mountain? I skipped it. We um, didn't want to use Genie Plus. So, so I've been going to Disneyland with my brother. And it's uh, the one place that we go together. And I was debating not renewing my pass. Um, for, for all the reasons of, of not renewing the cost and everything like that. But since it is the one place where my brother and I do go and we go on Fridays cause he's got the least expensive pass and mm-hmm. I have, uh, every other Friday off of work. So we go then. And so we went, um, two Fridays ago, uh, and we were there almost at, I, we got there like at nine in the morning and we were there till after the, um, projection show. Cause there were no fireworks on, and we went on a Thursday actually, not Friday. And it was pretty crowded. And I, I imagine it was crowded because of, um, the fact that the, the I think it's the, uh, Imagine Pass or Inspire. I forget which one, but, um, the pass that he has is, is going to be shut off for the summer. So a lot of people are going, um, going right ah, now. Okay. So despite the fact that it was crowded, um, we had a great time. We we went on. He had never been on Buzz Lightyear before, on the Astro Blasters before, so we we went on that. Had a great time. We went on uh, the submarines, um, a, a bunch of things. We were just Matterhorn was closed, but it's opening up again. So I'm going to probably go back in the next week or so to go on some of the attractions, but. Um, they Disneyland as being um as crowded as it is and and being such a small park has a really good way of absorbing crowds and so we we uh had a good good time what's happening now though is a lot of attractions are closing you know splash mountain as you know you just said mm-hmm. is closing the uh, treehouse hasn't opened yet there's the Matterhorn had been down as opening, but there's other attractions that I know the three major Fantasyland attractions are closing. Other two are going to reopen in June, right? And so it's it's now we're at the cusp of, of summer opening, and and there's all of these, you know. Um, unfortunately, um, it's not going to be a, a a full running park right now. So. And the projection show was nice. I, I really want to see the fireworks and see how they how they incorporate these projections with the fireworks. But the music was good and and we enjoyed that too. But we had we had a I think we walked fifteen thousand steps. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and and it wasn't a strenuous day. We weren't running from from um attraction to attraction, but it, it was, and we never made it to California Adventure. So the, I told him the next time we go, we have to go to California Adventure because every time we go, we, we, there's so much to do in Disneyland that we pretty much spend the day over there. Mm-hmm. So ha, when was the last time you've been to Disneyland? God, I haven't been there since December. When, I have a couple we of trips then. planned. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I have to go back. I just haven't found a weekend that I can go. So yeah, you're gonna like the the decorations for the hundredth uh, uh, 
celebration. I'm looking forward to that. And so, so I want to fit in a trip. You know, I'm going to be there for the Diz event, but I want to fit in another one. And then I have, um, you know, and then I'm going to be back again in December, that first weekend again. Because that's our tradition. Oh, that'll be good. And so. you might, you know, remember, we really enjoyed the holiday tour, Michael. Yes. I think you would enjoy the, the tour for the 100th celebration. It's more storytelling mm-hmm. in, in this tour, and it's a full two hours. And then what, do they take you on any attractions? Um, let me think if we went on any attractions. Because that's definitely one I want to sign up for. I and I haven't heard about the horticultural to. tour coming back yet, but they told me it was. They said it was. I asked again. They said it was. And, and that's another tour I really enjoyed. Yes. We should do that one together. Ah, oh, that would be so. You'd be correcting them on on what they what they have to say. I'd be taking notes. That was the best tour at Disneyland I've ever had. Yeah, what? And I still have my my little packet of seeds that they gave us. Remember, they gave us seeds and a little (laughs) and a little metal. Yeah, we got um, a nice pin for that. Yeah, it was it was uh, really. Oh, we got a beautiful pin on this tour. Um, I think they've learned. They've learned they can't get away with lanyards. Oh, they, I, I, they have to have pins. Yeah, for the uh, walk in waltz footsteps um, or the Main Street story, I left a scathing report, which I never do, but I did. And I said nothing against the tour guide. This is a horrible tour. Um, but for those who want to take the tour to go to Walt Disney's apartment, That's knowing the only that, reason. then it's, yeah, then, the then it's reason. worth it. But uh, for those of us that like to learn something or, or, um, be on a tour that teaches something because every time I go on these tours, I learn something, you, you yeah. know, even as many times as, as I've been there. Yeah. Now um, in downtown Disney, uh, does Ralph Brennan's look better in person than it does in the photos? I'll tell you next time I talk to you, I haven't been to downtown Disney. I'm so disappointed oh, okay. with the architectural plans that they have. Mm-hmm. But I um, agree. They're, they're removing all character. From it's going to look exactly. like an outdoor shopping mall. Well, and one thing we 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 um, I mean that's why they call it a theme park, right? Because of all the thematic um, architecture and and the nuances, and like they're stripping downtown Disney from that. I don't understand why. I still don't. I think it's this new generation of Imagineers. It's they want you know they want more um, boutique. Kind of thing. Now, supposedly, the, the the theme is supposed to be mid-century modern in order to complement the era of the Disneyland Hotel. But I'm not seeing that so far in their design. You mean the Disneyland Hotel that's at the far end, at the far west uh-huh. end, and and right. not the Grand Californian that's smack in the in the middle over the downtown Disney? Go, that, go think. That <laughs> that's on the other side of the security gates. That hotel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay. anyway, well, <laughs> that, I have to plan a weekend. I'll have to let you know the weekend in advance. Maybe we can. That'll meet be up cool. Part of it. So. Yeah, and I, I will I be. Talk- Go ahead. Pardon me. No, I say I think oh, no. I ta- I talked myself into getting a renewing my pass when it comes up in August. So, yeah. So, um, if you're at the Walt Disney Family Museum on June 3rd, I will be there. Be sure to say hello. They um, they're giving a talk on Walt's plane that was at the D23 Expo. Oh, that's cool. Are they yeah, are, including, are they going to have the plane there? Do you know? <laughs> Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna land it on Chrissy hey, Field. Hey, um, no, they they might no. put 
some barricades around it and trust the, people, <laughs> the fine people of San Francisco not to mess with it. Yeah, well, who knows? But um, yeah, but I think they have the pilot. And then they have, I forget who the other person is who's going to talk. They're going to share stories of the plane and Walt and all that. So that should be good. I got, um, I ordered the Funko Pop of Walt's plane. I don't know if you ever saw it. And Mickey is sticking out of it in a little little pilot's outfit. That sounds adorable. That's for them to autograph. So since there are no books on it that I could find. So, well, Mary Jo, thank you for joining us. Uh, um, this was a lot me. of fun. I enjoyed yeah. our chat. I used several books and articles in researching this episode, including the book Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic by J.B. Kaufman. Uh, also at the Walt Disney Family Museum, speaking of that, I used their display on Pinocchio as a reference. Some websites and articles I referred to, The Real Pinocchio and The Disney Pinocchio on Storynori.com. Walt Disney's 1940 classic Pinocchio by the Daily Mail. The Real Story of Pinocchio Tells No Lies by the Smithsonian Magazine. Walt Disney's Pinocchio by Charles Silver. The Twisted History of Pinocchio on Screen by Cindy White. The History of Disney Animation, Pinocchio by CVD History and Museums. The Impact of Jiminy Cricket on the Walt Disney Company by the Disney Classics website. Pinocchio, Imperiled by Termite by the Disney's Dream Makers. The original Pinocchio was Too Evil for Disney by Carl Seaver. How Pinocchio Set the Standard for Feature Animation by Genevieve Kosky. And The Untold Truth of Pinocchio by Sarah Buttery. So, Mary Jo, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, probably on Facebook under Mary Jo Mulatto Willie is the best place to, to um, send me a message or connect with me if you'd like to. Or if you go on the Disboards, I'm Webmaster Mary Jo. Excellent. Excellent. We'll look forward to maybe having you back on the show in a few weeks again. That so, would be fun. Um, that would be fun. I'd enjoy that. So, and you can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig and Mary Jo and all of our, our rotating cast of guest hosts on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Bye.